Welcome to another edition of Odyssey House Journals. We are calling this part two, talking about gender dysphoria. Last week I said if you don't want to learn about gender dysphoria, and it still for some reason is horribly controversial uh, in America, then tune out, turn off. But if you were interested in last week's episode and you want to find out what happened to Anna Bigney after a whole bunch of crap in her life, uh, that's why we are doing part two. I'm Randall Carlisle, your host, and our co-host uh, Rachel Santizo could not be with us for either of these podcasts. But I found this intriguing, and I asked Anna to come back and stay for a, a second part. And if you didn't see last week, I'll try to do a brief recap. She is born with a, with a male body, but has questions about her own thoughts about whether she's a male or a female or her sexuality. She was born into a very strict LDS family, went and served an LDS mission in the Philippines as a boy, uh, came back, got involved uh, after, and this is, I know I've left out some details, but finally found relief through drinking. The drinking in her mid-twenties increased to the point of a half gallon of alcohol a day, and she actually shot up meth. And when we left last week, she was sitting down with her family to tell them about the fact that she is transgender. So we were just discussing that last week, and I, and I appreciate your honesty, because this is a very, I, I mean, it is very personal, talking about your sexuality and, and your body and everything else. So thank you for being so honest and open. Absolutely. Um, and you're not embarrassed to do it either, are you? No, no. I. I think it's so much better coming from, you know, a source regardless of any kind of discomfort or awkward you know awkwardness that comes because it's it's ultimately better hearing it from the source than hearing right information that may not be accurate so absolutely and and we've all heard so much I want to get into that with you about what's happening around America right now but first I want to finish your personal story you you sat down with your family uh, and and what you said last week is they they be, they've become more liberal liberal Mormons I guess and understood the concept of homosexuality but not of transgenderism. So let's pick up that conversation and and, and what happened at that point in terms of your family, your church, the your friends. Yeah. So. Uh, <laughs> um. I essentially, you know, left um, left Texas feeling very, very, very defeated. Um, how, I mean, how did you leave things with your family? Did they say, "Don't ever come back. We don't have anything to do with you," or "We love you despite"? Or, or how they respond? It was one person in my family, in particular, who was very, very influential to me really 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 tried to push me back into the closet and you know in my mind I'm going am I gonna lose my family here so um, I actually went home and it was for maybe a month um, you know went back into the closet and um, you know a month was about all I could do a month was about all I could do after you know having come out and and felt 
that liberation and <clears throat> you know the sense of peace coming from it I um, going back in and feeling you know constricted again I just couldn't do it so I continued on and I, I didn't really speak with my family um, and what I can say is it was it was such an affirming thing. At this point, I was living in Provo. Um, for those of you who don't know, Provo is very, very conservative. However, I'm going to maintain that I love Provo. Okay. I was treated so well. Really? Um, living life as, as a woman or a man? Living, living life as a woman. Um, a transgender woman? Mm-hmm. And did people were people aware of that or? Yeah, uh huh. And then they treated you well, extremely well. Wow. Um, I even, like I like I said before, you know, consider myself right a secular Mormon, and and so you know, I, I um at that point thought, you know, I'm gonna you know, go and get to know the ward here, and and you know was attending, you know, a ward there. Just, you know, I, I didn't hide anything about my beliefs or where I was, but I also didn't push it to the forefront. It was mainly, these are my people and there's connection and not one, not one issue with anyone. And for those of you who don't know, because this is uh, watched and listened to around the world, uh, although it's recorded here in Salt Lake City, Provo is the home of BYU, which is a church-owned, uh, an LDS church-owned university, and is considered probably one of the more conservative areas in the country, really, in terms of morals and, and consumption of alcohol and things like that. So that sort of amazes me. It amazed me, too, but it, it's really one of the reasons why, like I said, I, I love my people is... Right, the um, the community and the amount of, you know, care and support was astounding, and and coming from that source. Um, How did I? You know, I find a dichotomy here that your family <laughs> has trouble accepting what you told them, but but Utah County, Provo, Utah, uh, greeted you and was was friendly. That's that's sort of weird, don't you think? Initially, yes. However. I mean, I think it has more to do with the family dynamic, right? I, th I think as much as, you know, we may have black sheep to the family or whatever, <laughs> I think breaking up whatever dynamic exists is very threatening. Um, and, and I think that's, that's sort of what had happened, right? Um, it's almost like, you know, a family who has like a, a gay son. Everybody knows, but nobody acknowledges it. <laughs> and so I think it had a lot more to deal with, you know, threatening family identity and and um i don't know but that's just that's my speculation okay, yeah, i just find that interesting uh okay so you're at this point are you sober yes okay uh -huh. you're sober you're living in provo you're attending uh sunday services i guess at a ward house mm -hmm. and and so how did your life progress after that so because you did, you did relapse, didn't you? I did. Yeah. And um, why? So it was actually almost a year to the day after getting sober. Um, and it, 
it involved family again. Uh, it, it was a very painful altercation with um, somebody in my family. Actually, a, a series of them. There were two in particular. And, you know, like I had mentioned at that point, I had been keeping my distance, thought maybe around a year was enough and tried to engage. And um, there were some pretty traumatic things that happened, um, one involving, you know, my, my dad showing up to my house and um, forcing me into a car and... and um, screaming and threatening and I remember driving up Provo Canyon and you know him at one point threatening to drive the car off a cliff and kill us both and another one that involved uh, <coughs> a brother and a gun um, and I remember after that just you know like you do finding yourself at a liquor store where you know, you feel that pain and you you have unfortunately already developed this coping mechanism. Which was pretty quick and easy, right? Right there. That must have been painful to, uh, to have your dad threaten to, have your brother threaten you with a gun and your dad threaten you to, to drive off a canyon. Was it like, if you don't change, I'm gonna drive off the canyon? Yeah. So obviously, they did not understand the fact that you can't just snap your fingers and say, okay, I'll be different, right? Yeah. You are who you are. Yeah. How did you deal? I mean, how did you deal with that? You, there was probably screaming and yelling at that point, high drama. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I remember just really a lot of just <clears throat> freezing up during it. And, you know, doing what I needed to do to get out of the situation. I remember just, you know, like with my dad just saying, yeah, okay, I'll, whatever you ask, I'll you change. know, selling it <laughs> just until, you know, I could get sure. home. And then, um, yeah. So you go back to numbing yourself with the easiest way. Mm -hmm. uh, and how long did that last and how bad did it get? So... I was in a, I don't know, a few month um, period of drinking and said, you know, I need to pull back. But I couldn't successfully. It was, it was more weaning myself off and then, you know, falling back into it. And, um, you know, I, I was doing, I was doing that with my life. Um, and, and this kind of progressed like that until, you know, uh, right, COVID hit. <clears throat> and it was at that point where, you know, I, I was laid off from my job and just fell into a very deep depression. Um, started, you know, hanging out with people who were questionable. And I, I remember one night in particular, this, this gets to the shooting up meth, was with a friend and she pulled out, you know, a, a baggie of meth and, you know, we had already been drinking and for whatever reason, I just thought, what the hell? And um, she had a needle and we ended up, you know, um, diluting the meth, 
and we both just shot up and um honestly the experience was horrible i was going to ask you because i've never done meth what did what did it do for you so it wasn't it, it wasn't the pleasant numbing that alcohol gave you no i it felt like i had had way 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 way, way too much coffee okay and i couldn't calm down and i just wanted to go to sleep and i couldn't but go to couldn't. sleep <laughs> yeah um it wasn't a good experience at all i, I know a lot of people will talk about meth use to, you know saying i i tried this and, and it was i loved I, it yeah <laughs> i hated it okay which um, is good yeah <laughs> you know. and 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 so after that you know i i knew okay i'm i'm not gonna do this i'm gonna stick with alcohol and i just felt like a sense of intense shame after that and and you know not working and being inside all the time and i just i just thought you know what i'm nothing is working out here right i came out that didn't work i thought i could find you know relief and i'm just stuck in this i'm stuck in alcoholism and i'm always going to be stuck i don't see a way out of this i had a year and then i blew that and i thought you know what i i'm just going to end it i didn't necessarily have a like a date set but i thought I don't want to do anything that's very painful and I I'm just going to drink until that takes over right until I don't wake up one morning and um, I remember <clears throat> I was with a friend and uh, it was one night after drinking quite a bit I woke up the next morning and you know I was reaching under a bed the bed for a you know, the alcohol that I had left under there to sure. get me through the morning is, you know, alcoholics do. And um, she confronted me and she, she was very firm uh, saying, I know what you're doing and I can't sit by and watch this. You need to do something. And I remember I was just fighting for the alcohol you know, going, where is it? <clears throat> where is it? I need that. Give that to me. That's mine. You can't, you can't just take that away right. from me. Right. And I got to the point where, like, I had, it was like a momentary um, outward perspective of who and what I was and what I was doing. And to this one person who really cared about me. And it was just an epiphany moment. Um seeing what I'd become and also realizing I don't want to die like I don't want to die and that's approaching very very fast for me and um, I knew I had a detox so I went I went to the hospital and um, you know they helped me detox while detoxing um, of course I had a social worker come in ended up going to you know the uh, um I guess you would say the mental health sort of crisis um, right. part of LDS hospital. And while staying there, spoke with, you know, a, a uh, psychologist about what was going on. And, you know, said, I, I, need, I need treatment, right? 
having you know some days sobered up just realized like if I'm gonna do something I think I've decided that you know I I do want to get sober I don't want to die um, let them know that I want treatment and they had uh, they said look there are some openings some places um, or there aren't there aren't any openings anywhere except for um, Odyssey House. <laughs> Do you think maybe maybe we could release you and then get you into one of these places? And I said, no, I need to go from here. If I don't go from here, I've got the motivation to do this right now. I don't know if that's going to leave. And if that leaves again, I'm going to die. And initially he said he warned against Odyssey because he said, well, they're not really your type. They're they're." It's kind of a criminal population. And it's a tough program. It's a tough program. Yeah. yeah. And I remember just saying, look, I don't care. I need something tough. Get me in there. Yeah. So um, this is toward the end of June. And I and, um, remember waking up the next morning, and um, taxi came, and I, I got in the taxi. They brought me to admissions. All I had were uh, pajamas that I was in. I didn't even have shoes on. So you came in barefoot in pajamas to admissions. Well, they they found me some shoes because oh, okay. I, right. I was going to say, yeah. Um, so you're admitted to Odyssey, uh, and you went to one of the adult residential houses. I did. How were you greeted? Great. It was. They they didn't say who's this weirdo and and what is he or she coming in no. for or anything. No. Um. Right. They. They put me over on the women's side, right. no questions asked. At that time, we were doing quarantine houses, so spent you know a couple of weeks in right. a quarantine house. Everybody was, everybody was amazing. Um, no awkwardness, no weirdness. Um, fast forward to going to you know Meadowbrook, which is an Odyssey house where I went, and same story. It didn't even come up. It was, there were two things that happened there that were very healing. Number one, right, this, what I considered a Pandora's box of, of emotions and trauma that I, you know, I felt inside. I realized I had somewhere safe where I could unpack it, regardless of what came out and however long it took. Which you'd never had before. No. Wow. Um, and the fact that, while staying there, I actually kind of forgot that I was transgender. Like, I was in there, you know, in the girls' dormitory, and it was just so natural. No awkwardness, no weirdness. And that was one of the things that really kind of cemented me just fully accepting who I was. Wow. Um, it was... It was the most healing thing I've ever gone through. It was very hard. Which Odyssey House is. And, and we sort of take pride in that because if you, if you buy into it and you do the work, it works. It does. If you don't, it doesn't work. But so, so this, I, I'm so pleased to hear this. Uh, obviously, I, I work at Odyssey House. And you hear a lot of negative stories, but to hear something like this, that, you know, all those struggles in your life and all of a sudden it's the best thing that's ever happened to you. 
Yeah. And and let me tell you, we didn't pay her to say this, okay, <laughs> right? No. <laughs> um, I think the thing that comes right is is when there is resistance, you know, there are several different ways to approach sobriety, several different systems, right? And, you know, every system's evolving and changing, and nothing is perfect. And so I know, right, when you, when you, um, maybe you don't want to fully embrace recovery, or there's something that you're very much dealing with that you don't want to look, look at, I think there's, you know, a lot of externalizing. And a lot of critiques are valid, right? Nothing is perfect and mistakes are made. Sure. Um, I know things, I think for me the reason it was successful is I understood that and I said, you know, at this point I just need to trust overall and for lack of a better word, surrender. Because I'm out of answers. I need something. And I just, I just need to trust And that was incredibly, that was incredibly helpful. Um, so finally, finally, after all these years, you're comfortable in your own skin. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that, that must be so empowering, enlightening. It must be a, a wonderful feeling. I mean, it, it is, it, it comes from, I think when you understand yourself and get acquainted with yourself, strengths and weaknesses, um, any outside criticism that comes rolls off the back, right? Because you have this grasp on something more firm and more lasting, you know, yourself, the essence of yourself. And having, you know, being acquainted with yourself creates kind of an, an anchor, so to speak. Sure. And at the same time, builds just that confidence where... Where you can come and talk about it in a podcast. <laughs> yeah, I mean, worst case scenario, somebody's like, well, that's just a mentally ill dude in a dress, right? It's like, okay, that's cool. Yeah. But it's not... <laughs> right. let's, let's talk about things happening in America for a second. Yeah. There is so much controversy over gender dysphoria to the point that somebody like yourself or, or myself, believes that it's causing a lot of damage to kids growing up just like you did. Yeah. What, why do you think there's, all of a sudden there's all this anger over it all, and, and I don't understand that. Why do you think that is? Is it fear? Or? I think it's two part. I, I think the intended reaction is, is fear, but I think it's also I think by creating an other, you can energize certain people. I, I think in a lot of ways, it's for better or for worse, used as a political football. Oh, obviously I, <laughs> it's being used. You know. I, I say that simply because those who really propagate the ideas, um, propagate false ideas and, and you know, knowing about, you know, how it develops and the science behind it and, and, and the medical practices, you know that they're knowingly putting out false information. Sure, because they're ignoring it. Well, let, uh, let, a little a quick Q&A here, yeah. just, okay. Mm -hmm. did, w when you were growing up, 
did somebody groom you to become a transgender woman? Okay, that's one of the theories out there. So was there a groomer in your life? No, I did everything manly and overcompensated. It was very much the opposite. Did you see um, a drag show that made you want to dress like a woman? No, it was so disconnected. I didn't know what being transgender was or was a thing. I thought I was a, some kind of offshoot of being gay at best. Well, and see, these are the arguments being used. And, and, and so we're talking to a, a legitimate transgender woman here. And, and the arguments just don't fly in terms of what created you. They, they don't. I mean, like everything, there's still so much research to be done and, and, and repeated. However, what we do know so far, um, it's, it, it's been repeatable, it's, it's been vetted, and it gives a lot of clues into how and why this develops. Um, and... And furthermore, while we're on the medical thing, I, I do want to dismiss this. Part of, the, uh, part of a lot of the fear-mongering surrounds trans youth at this point. And, you know, you may hear, you know, people saying, well, they're, they're mutilating our youth. They're, right. And, and the fact of the matter is, um, even just to start, right, hormone replacement therapy, that is a long, long process even for an adult adult, for a child even more so. Um, children are generally not given the hormones, they're given hormone blockers, which are not permanent, right? If, if you go through your youth and you go, okay, maybe this wasn't actually, you know, what I was feeling, at least I dipped my toes in there and all I have to do is stop taking the hormone blockers and I'll have a delayed puberty, right? Um, surgeries just don't happen on children they don't there have been a few rare instances but there were some circumstances that really warranted that but extremely rare and not children we're talking you know well the, and these are all high drama bullet points that people yeah. on one side of the fence are using politically to gain to gain support and, and scare people yeah yeah and it's, I, I really don't blame people who, you know, um, um, get worked up about that. I, I've got compassion for them because the way that it's being presented, right, it's, I can see how that would be really terrifying, you know? Sure. You're getting your children brainwashed um, by a system to do something that's irreversible. That's frightening. I'm going to have to cut us off now because our time is up. And I, I really want to thank you for being so honest. And I hope that if people watched both of these half hours, it'll give them a, a little better understanding into gender dysphoria, which is just something that happens. And it's, it, and it's such a big deal these days, and we're trying to dispel that. And I, I hope whether these two half-hour podcasts made you angry or enlightened you or something, you might let us know. Uh, but but I hope they were certainly informative, and I thank you for for bearing your soul, really. So thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. We are honored to have you, and we're honored to have you as an employee now at Odyssey House. So thank, thank you. you. And thank you for watching another edition of Odyssey House Journals.